Brilliant. If you've got a Bible, please open up to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, if you need a Bible, some down the center aisles. It's page 347, Isaiah. Now, don't know about you and me. Uh, some of us like maths, I'm sure. Some of us chose careers in counting. But we all count, don't we? We all count all sorts of things. We count, uh, we count, we track, we measure. So whether that's Chris and Jenny, when they have a new baby, will announce one day the date that their baby was born, the time that it was born, how much it weighed, how, much, uh, how long it was, and how much it looked like Chris. Uh, we'll announce that. You know, uh, so we, we measure babies. We track, we count. If you're on a diet... You count calories. So I got, I got this thing on my wrist, and some, I know a lot of people have them as well, like step trackers that count your steps. They count your calories. This one even tells me whether I had a good night's sleep or not. Um, and then last Christmas, someone very kindly bought us weighing scales that link to our Fitbit. Uh, I won't tell you who that was, uh, but he's old and uh, <laughs> uh, cantankerous, no. Uh, and this weighing scales, it measures the BMI, the body fat, the body water, the, the visceral fat around your organs, the skeletal muscle, the bone mass, and the muscle mass, which I have a healthy uh, measure on, I'll let you know. Uh, so we measure all sorts of things. We measure food if you're on a diet as well. So you, all of our food has weights and volumes on it, doesn't it? Grams, kilograms, milliliters, liters. We buy beer in pints. We buy wine by bottles that are 750 milliliters. On our food, there's traffic-like systems that count the, the, the grams of carbs and fats and proteins and salt and fiber and all sorts of interesting things like that. We count success, we count failure, we count and measure the weather, the tides, the moon, the season, sports reports, transfer fees, box office ticket sales, distances, speed and age. We even measure the amount of friends we have on social media and how much people like us by the clicks that they give us. When we meet new people, we size them up, don't we? We measure them to see, I wonder how many kids they've got. Do they have a bigger house than me? Uh, what kind of personality they ha do they have? We measure them. And then if we want a new job, we send our CV into the application because we want people to measure us up with our character and our abilities and our experience and our qualifications to judge whether we are worthy of this new position. So you and I, we're all surrounded by different weights and measures and yardsticks, and we use them so that we can be confident about the world around us. So if you go to the petrol station, you know that you are getting a liter of petrol for your £1.30. We have standards so that we can gain a, a sense of control and a sense of comfort so that we can kind of assure ourselves that we measure up or that we're fulfilling the standards, or comparing ourselves to others in some ways, so that perhaps their shortcomings make us look better. But deep down, we all know that actually, we probably don't really measure up. We're limited. And especially then when we read something like Isaiah 40, that we uh, have been in the last couple of weeks, where Isaiah says in verse, uh, well, we began in verse 12 last week, who has measured everything? And the answer being, well, God has. And then in verse 13, who has measured God? Well, no one has. And so it, got, it puts us in our right perspective because it reminds us that God is immeasurable and unlike us. 
who are very, very measurable. Isaiah's been telling us about the infinity of God, about how immeasurable or unquantifiable or uncontainable or uh, unbound that God is, that he is a, is a God, a being with utterly, uh, utterly without limits, that he is completely immeasurable. He is, uh, as the old uh, kind of theologians used to talk about, he's incomprehensible. Not in the fact that he cannot be understood at all, but that he's incomprehensible in that you can't understand him fully. And we've been working our way through Isaiah 40, and Isaiah's been calling us to behold our God, to lift our eyes off of ourselves and off of the measurements that we use in this world and off of our problems to look at God. So we began in verses 1 to 11 where we beheld the goodness of God and we saw that God promises his struggling people a mighty savior who will bring in a wonderful deliverance. Then last week we looked at 12 to 17 where Isaiah calls us to behold the greatness of God, that God can be counted on to fulfill his promises of delivering a mighty deliverer and a great salvation because he far superior, is far superior and far exceeds the creation and the universe that he has made. He is infinite in power. Now today, Isaiah is going to build on us beholding the goodness and the greatness of God. And he's going to call us to behold another attribute of God. We're just going to look at two verses this morning, 13 and 14. So will you read uh, with me Isaiah 40 verses 13 and 14. Here's what Isaiah says. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did God consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and these two verses that can really actually blow our minds as finite human beings like us who like to count and track and measure stuff are called to behold the immeasurable unquantifiable, uncontainable, unbound God. We pray for your help now to grasp something of who you are and what you're like so that we might behold you in your glory and your goodness and glory might do us good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the, Isaiah continues with his rhetorical questions. Who has measured the Lord, the spirit of the Lord? And that's, that's to do with his dimensions. It's talking about his spatial dimensions. Who can measure God? No one can. And who did God counsel? Uh, who counseled God to make stuff? No one did. Who's taught him understanding? Well, no one has. Who has shown him the path of justice or the right way of doing things? No one has. Who's taught him knowledge and who showed him understanding? No one has. The original recipients of Isaiah's prophecy were in great need of encouragement, as we've said before. They were pressed hard on every side by uh, uh, very oppressive, dangerous, powerful enemies, and they had no means of escape, and they had really no hope 
of freedom. There was a looming, frightful, fearful future that stood before them as the Babylonians were on their northern borders ready to conquer them. And I think Isaiah anticipates their complaints. A little bit like we looked at last week. Is God really powerful to help us? Well, yes, he is, Isaiah said. Now, this week he anticipates their complaint. Does God even know? He might be powerful, but does he even know what's happening in our lives? Does he know what's going on? And worse, does he even care? Who's asked those kind of questions? I know I have. Where's God in this? Does he know what's going on in my life? Does he even care? Well, Isaiah's going to come and he's going to tell us, oh, if you've asked those questions, I've got answers. And if you've thought that God doesn't know or doesn't care about your condition, then you are profoundly wrong because these two verses tell us two things about God, that he is all powerful. Sorry, last week we looked at he's all powerful. This week he's all, he's all knowledgeable, he's all knowing, and he's all wise. And so we're going to look at those two things just together this morning because Isaiah is going to come and tell us God is all-knowing, God is all-wise. Now think about this for a minute because it has to fit in with what we said last week. Because if you have unbounded power without knowledge and wisdom, it's frightening. Unbounded power without complementary knowledge and wisdom is frightening for how would such a God know how to use that power rightly and justly and for good? But on the other hand, if you have knowledge and wisdom without, without power, that's pathetic. Because you can know the right thing to do. God could say, oh yes, I see what needs to happen. But if he doesn't have all power, he would be useless and, and worthless to help. So Isaiah wants us to keep these two things in mind. God is united fully in endless power and limitless knowledge and wisdom. And he's united in these two things. And because he has both of those things, he's utterly worthy of our trust and confidence. So we're just going to explore these two truths. God is all-knowing and God is all-wise. And then I want to make some application into our own lives. So let's begin with this. God's infinite knowledge. God's infinite knowledge. Now, at the beginning of verse 13, as I've said, we have these questions. Who did this and what man did that and whom said this? No one has ever measured God. No one has advised God. When God was sitting in the council of the Trinity before the world was founded, he didn't take advice from anybody. There was no one who gave him advice on what creation should look like or how he should set up the laws of gravity or how he should keep the world spinning on its axis and how he should administer his universe. No one ever gave God counsel. No one gave him Advice, And that's not merely because God is very knowledgeable like a sort of a divine Wikipedia. Okay, It's because God made all things and therefore knows perfectly how they operate, how they work. He didn't learn them. He didn't learn about stuff because he originated that stuff. They find everything finds its origin in him. He's the creator of all things. Therefore, he knows how all things work. And the, the, the posh Bible theological word for this is omniscience. He is all-knowing. His knowledge is limitless. Now, compare that to us. 
from birth to death, you and I learn things, don't we? We learn to breathe when we come out of our mother's womb. We learn to feed. We learn to sleep. We learn to walk. We learn to talk. We learn to run. Some of us learn to drive. Others of us drive having not appeared to have learned how to drive. Okay, we go through years of education. You go into education, if you go to preschool, you're in at what, like three? And then you come out of education, if you like, once you've done your degree and your master's and your PhD, you could be like 40. So, you know, my, almost half your life could be spent in education. The UN tells, uh, wrote a document uh, not too long ago, one of the fundamental human rights of being a human is education. Okay, that's what the UN says. It says every human being should have the right to education because it is the essential right for exercising all other human rights. Think about history and the nations and even today. How do oppressive regimes and governments suppress their people and keep them marginalized and control them? Well, one of the first things they do is they remove education. So through the years, women and the poor and even whole ethnic communities, even today, have their education removed in order to suppress them and oppress them. Because education, the UN says, is a fundamental human right. To be human is to learn and to grow and to develop. We've all heard the phrase, you learn something new every day, don't we? Not with God. That is a statement that could never be said about God. God has not learned something new every day. In fact, God has never learned one thing new, ever. Because learning implies change and growth. And God, the scriptures tell us, is unchanging. Edwin Lutzer, who, is a, uh, who wrote a book about the, the knowledge and the wisdom of God, he said this, which I thought was really catchy and I, I liked it. He says this, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Unbounded by time, uh, God knows all things, past and present and future. Nick's already pointed us to those kind of timelines in our lives. God knows the past, he knows the present, he knows the future, and he holds a perfect and infinite knowledge about all of those things. He knows all about himself as God, and he knows all about everything that he has made. A.W. Tozer, who was a theologian in the 60s, says this, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and all beings, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. God knows it all. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing. Well, okay, that's a statement to get your head around, isn't it? Because he knows all things Nothing can outsmart him, basically. And he knows all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor except when drawing men out for their own good. Does he ever seek information or ask questions? 
That's the kind of God we have. His knowledge is is inexhaustible and exhaustive. It is universal and infallible. It is absolute in totality and therefore absolute in its perfection. He knows all things actual and possible. He knows what is and what could be. And he also knows what could never be. He knows all facts and they are always before him in one continuous consciousness. So God doesn't have a filing cabinet where he needs to go and look up stuff. It's always, everything that he knows is always before him. He doesn't have to go and look stuff up. He doesn't have to reason to conclusions. He doesn't have to say when someone asks him a question, hmm, that's a very good question, and take time to kind of ponder the answer like you and I might. He knows the end from the beginning, the Bible tells us repeatedly. He knows the past, the present, the future, and eternity. He's God. (laughs) And he's immeasurable, and he's different to us. And the incredible thing is he never learns, and he never forgets anything. He never has divine forgetfulness or divine amnesia. And gloriously, he'll never have divine dementia. Now, the Bible doesn't try and prove this to us or persuade us of it. It simply and categorically just states it. And and you could look this up. Maybe this is something you could do in your small groups this week. Uh, We haven't got time to turn to these, but I'm just going to throw out a bunch of scriptures now that tell us that God is wise and knowledgeable. Job 36 verse 5, Job 37 verse 16, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Daniel 2 verses 20 to 22, Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, and 1 John 3 verse 20. They were just a sampling of the things that I found. But maybe it's good to look that up because the Bible doesn't, Prove it, it just tells us, it announces to us. God has infinite knowledge, which means he knows all about you and me. He knows everything that's going on in your body. He knows everything that's going on in your mind. He knows everything that's going on in your life. So when the original audience was saying, does God really know? Isaiah's going, yes, he does. But then to the question of does he care, Isaiah goes on. Look at verse 14 with me, for it takes us a bit deeper beyond the idea of God just knowing stuff to tell us about God's infinite wisdom. That's the second point, God's infinite wisdom. So he says, well, let's read it all. There's only two verses. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord? No one. Or what man has shown him counsel? No one. Whom did he consult and who made him understand? No one. And who taught him the path of justice? That literally means, who showed God the right way to do stuff? Not only is God all-knowing, he's also all-wise. He's also all-wise. Job 12, verse 12 says this, Wisdom is with the aged. And understanding comes in length of days. Now think about God who is declared in the scriptures to be the ancient of days and the eternal God. So if wisdom is with the aged and the gray-haired and the old and understanding does come, wisdom comes with length of days, how wise must the ancient of days be? And Job goes on to say this, with God 
there are wisdom. Wisdom is with God and so is might. And he has all counsel. He has all understanding. So if knowledge is having all of the facts, wisdom is using those facts and knowing those facts to rightly make the best, most just, most perfect decisions to choose the best goals and then to know how to undertake the best means and the best actions to accomplish those best goals at the very best time. You get that? In other, way, in other words, the pathways that God chooses, the things that he does are in keeping with his entire knowledge and therefore, they are always wise and always good from a divine perspective. God is infinite and perfect in knowledge. And therefore, he's able to exercise perfect wisdom because he knows the outcomes. He knows everything. And implicit in holding perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom is goodness. You never talk. Have you ever, have you ever thought about this? If you watch like movies or you watch, um, you know, cartoons or whatever. My kids and, and, and I actually, we like the, um, th- this cartoon called Phineas and Ferb. Okay, it's on the Disney Channel. It's brilliant. You could watch it. It's, it's really, it's hilarious. It's funny. And, and we love to watch it. And in, in this, uh, this cartoon, there's the, there's the kind of the arch nemesis of Perry the platypus, all right? All right, it's going to sound like I'm crazy. Okay, but the arch nemesis of Perry the platypus is called Dr. Doofenshmirtz. And he is never, ever referred to as having evil wisdom because you can't have evil wisdom. He's an evil genius, but wisdom, inherent in the idea of wisdom, is goodness. Implicit in the idea of God's wisdom is goodness. He knows all things and therefore, because he knows all things, he can make the wisest and best decisions which are for good of his people. And then when you marry knowledge and wisdom to God's infinite power, you just have this matchless combination. Where of course then, Paul will write in Romans 8, which we quote often, Who can stand against us if God is for us? If he's all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful in this matchless combination, who can challenge him? Well, no one can. So God understands everything exactly the right way and always does everything exactly the right way. And he always does everything exactly in the right way at the right time. And because he's unchanging, he always has and he always will. So let me put that into layman's terms for a moment, okay? God never guesses at anything. God never assumes anything. God never conjectures anything. God never learns from his mistakes. Because there aren't any. God never grows in wisdom. And his wisdom never either waxes or wanes, but is always active and never failing. And you can look at creation and providence and grace and his word to see that he always operates in perfect wisdom, according to perfect knowledge, through perfect 
power. And his word tells us time and again, and it recounts and celebrates and displays God's all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful goodness. All of God's acts, everything that he does, are pure because he is pure. And everything that he does is as wise as it is pure. And everything that he does is as good as it is wise and pure. Remember what Tozer said? Not only does God know everything, but there is no better way to know anything. A better way to do stuff could not be imagined because God could not imagine it. He knows exactly what is needed at all times. And he can't begin to think of a better way. Because he's already thought about the best way. Because he's got all the facts. And because he knows what he's aiming for, which is the best goals. So God can't be fooled. God can't be outsmarted. And God cannot be frustrated. Because he's wise, knowing, and powerful. And that's Isaiah's point, isn't it? In Isaiah 40, God can be trusted. Absolutely. He could be trusted, absolutely, because he knows all things, and he's using all of that knowledge for good, wisely, in line with his power, to bring about the best possible goals for his people and himself. So let's just put that into the lives of the original audience for a moment. So in Isaiah 39, uh, Isaiah prophesies to them, the Babylonians are coming for you because of your sin, because of your rebellion against me, because of your apostasy. I'm sending the Babylonians. They're going to come and conquer you. They're going to slaughter you and they're going to take a, a remnant of the people into exile. And we might read that and go, God is orchestrating a foreign army to come and kill his people and to conquer them and to exile them from Jerusalem. And he's going to only leave a small remnant of people who are faithful to him. That doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that against his own people? That doesn't seem very just. That doesn't seem very wise. But Isaiah's point here. In the very next chapter, so that's 39, but in 40, he says, listen, God knows what he's doing. He always has and he always will. He's perfect in knowledge, infinite in knowledge, unmatched in power. And he's always operating with a goodness and a wisdom. That means although it might not make sense to you from your perspective... As God looks down in possession of all the facts, as he sees the end from the beginning, and as he knows all things possible and actual and that could be and that could never be, he says, this is the best way to bring about the best for my people and the most glory for me. Now, that's hard to understand. I understand. I get that. I struggle with these things. I'm not saying like, come on, everybody, this is easy. Get on board. We need to get on board because it's true. But it's not going to be easy. Sometimes these things chafe against us. They butt up against us. But we've got to remember what Isaiah says to us. He says, listen, human beings, they're like grass. This is verse 6 and 8, isn't it? Human beings like grass, yet we bloom, we flourish, and then we quickly wither. 
we fade away. We're here today and gone tomorrow. So who really, the, the implicit question is this, who really are we with all of our puny minds and our restricted perspectives and our limited resources to disagree with God? Who are we to challenge God? Who are we to question him or to correct him or to try and advise him otherwise? Which is what we so often do, isn't it? Why is this happening, God? Why couldn't you do it this way? I don't understand this. Why didn't you do that? We might not say it out loud, but we wrestle with that internally. I don't understand. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why has he taken me down this path? We all have doubts and questions. They are legitimate. But we need to phrase them rightly. And, and I wish we had more time to do this. Because you see it in the Psalms. The numerous psalmists struggle with the lot that they've been given. The, the difficulties that they're faced with. Why are people trying to kill me? Why has this happened? Why has that happened? Why is no one doing this? What about the wicked? Where are, why are the evil prospering? They express their questions. So it's not illegitimate to express the questions. we just got to do it in the right way. And the Psalms help us to phrase our questions. Because in asking the questions, the psalmist never challenges God. Like, but he, he always then questions but submits. Okay, I, I don't know. And that is what Isaiah wants for us. He wants us to remember God was doing just fine before you were born. <laughs> and he'll be doing just fine after you're dead. So instead, just trust him. Remember the context in which Isaiah is speaking. He's, he's bringing comfort in verse 1. He tells us, comfort, comfort, my people. Keeps on saying you're God. He's comforting a broken and a harassed people. People who didn't understand what was going on. People who looked on at the world and said, it's out of control. Isaiah says, no, it's not. No, it's not. No matter how things might look in this world, and it is a fallen world, it's all in God's hands. But you and I won't recognize that unless we see the end for which he is working. We won't recognize God's wisdom in the world unless we see the end for which he is working. And that's, that's where so many of us can go wrong. That's where our thinking goes wrong. Let me, let me try and give you an example. I've been thinking about this week. Okay, We read in 1 John, God is love. All right, very familiar. God is love. He's a loving God. It's at the, at the core of his very being. Everything that he does is love. It's a loving mercy. It's a loving justice. It's a loving holiness. It's a loving goodness. God is love. But sometimes then we in our finite human brains go, oh, that must mean that God never intends anything bad to happen to us. Because bad stuff happening goes against the idea of God being love in our finite brains. And so we look on and we say, well, God must intend for us to live a trouble-free life. And we conclude then that anything painful or anything upsetting whether it be from the multitudes of unrepentant sinners that are destined for hell, right down to what goes on in everyday life, illness and accidents and injuries and loss of jobs and suffering and death of loved ones, we, 
we, we go, well, because that's happening, God can't be wise. Or maybe God isn't powerful. Or maybe he's just not both. Maybe he's not wise or powerful. Or we say, maybe God doesn't exist after all. Because I thought he was love. Why did he let my mum die? Why did my sister get divorced? Why has my dad been diagnosed with cancer? If he's love, why do these things happen? We, those kind of thoughts go through our minds, and yet when God announces that he is love, that is not a pledge to just keep a fallen world happy or to make our lives comfortable, even for Christians. In fact, he promises the very reverse, doesn't he? If anybody lives, desires to live a godly life, going to be persecuted. It's going to be hard. God has other ends in view than just our immediate temporal happiness or to make our lives comfortable and easy for everyone. So what are his goals? What's his end game? Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, repeatedly and all the way through that God has made us. He made a people for himself who would praise him and know him and enjoy him, and worship him, and serve him, and love him, and enjoy all the benefits of who he is in all of his essential being and character. He made us to be a people for himself, but mankind screwed it up in challenging God and declaring independence from him, saying, we'll just be fine on our own, thank you very much. And although the world is fallen... God has not changed his mind or his plans. His ultimate objective still continues to be to gather a people for himself, his own treasured possession, to which he will say, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's still all about that. And so God is working wisely to deliver people from sin and death, to bring them to new life and to set them free and to bring them into a relationship of faith and hope and love with himself so that they may experience the freedom and the forgiveness of sins and may enjoy his saving love upon us that, as we heard in Ephesians 1 this morning, was bestowed upon us before the foundation of the world. God from all eternity has been working a plan so that you and I this morning might have come to experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's his end game. He hasn't changed his plan because man sinned. He doesn't work out a plan B. He's not thinking through afterthoughts. Oh no, what am I going to do? But he formed a plan before the universe was founded. According to his infinite knowledge, according to his infinite wisdom, outworked by his infinite power to bring salvation to sinners. In his perfect way, according to his perfect purposes, for his supreme glory. That was his end game, and it still continues to be. And so God's Old Testament people, when they walked through stuff that was hard and was unexpected and was upsetting and was discouraging, it was because God was trying to do something in their lives and do something through them that they haven't yet already attained. 
to make them his people. And he continues to deal with his people. He continues to deal with you and me in much the same ways. So we, when we, when we are hit with hard things, unexpected things, upsetting things, things that discourage us, we shouldn't be surprised that those things are happening to us now because that's the way that God has been dealing with his people because in his wisdom, he is trying to accomplish something in us that we have not yet fully attained. That is all working towards his ultimate objective. A people for himself who look like his son, Jesus. So when we go into and are hit by hard and unexpected and upsetting and discouraging things, perhaps God is trying to strengthen us in patience or compassion or humility or meekness by giving us, if you like, some extra practice in experiencing and outworking and exercising these, these graces under difficult circumstances. Perhaps when hard things hit us, God is trying to teach us new lessons of self-denial. Take up your cross and follow me. Perhaps he's trying, to, uh, he's trying to break us out of our complacency and our spiritual apathy or our unreality. And challenge us in our pride. That we think we know best or that we're okay on our own. Or in our idolatry or in our coveting that we're, we're looking for satisfaction in the wrong things. He's trying to break that in us. Perhaps he's preparing us for new ways to serve that at the moment we just don't have an inkling into that. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you know, we are able to comfort now because of the comfort that we received. And so maybe God is taking you through hard things and upsetting things and discouraging things so that you can be a comfort to someone else in the future. Perhaps... In the hard things and the unexpected things and the difficult things, it's just God saying, come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Perhaps it's him just simply drawing us to himself in more conscious, deeper, richer communion and fellowship with him. So how do these two things, infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge, how do they how do they change the perspective on our lives today? Well, usually when we want to find out what's going on in the world, we get on the internet, don't we? Which is this kind of like all-you-can-eat buffet of information that's literally at the, the, fing the ends of your fingertips. We've got more knowledge available to us than probably all generations beforehand put together. And so human beings believe that we should know about everything that's going on. That all knowledge should be ours. We have, if you're like me, you have this insatiable desire to know what is happening. We covet omniscience. And we think that we deserve it somehow, that we are owed it. And if there is something that God doesn't tell us, why is he holding out on us? And we're suspicious about him. And we have this age-old problem that's still going on in our hearts that was first seen in Adam and Eve, that they wanted the tree, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be like God. And so I want to be like God. I want to know the facts, the who, the what, the where, the when, the how. But I also want to know why. You like that as well? That woke you up, didn't it? 
Why is this happening? We want not just the who and what. We want access to all the facts and we want to know why. And we want to know why because we think if we know why, we'll have peace of mind. But let's be honest, right? If you get a, an ache in your side, right? I remember this when I had what was eventually diagnosed as shingles. I had this pain in my back. And you look up online, pain in your back. Because I think, oh, if I know what it means, I'll have peace of mind. If I know what's going on, I have peace of mind. So look up, what's this? And you, you suddenly discover that basically you should be on your deathbed because you've got multiple forms of cancer and, you know, there's no hope for you. And you think, wow, now I have peace of mind. I just woke up this morning with back pain and now I'm diagnosed with cancer. Who, who has ever had their, their mind calmed? by what's ever been written on the internet. Our gluttony of information does not relieve our anxieties. You know, we seek knowledge because we think knowledge is power, and power means we can control, and then if we have control, we'll be okay. But if you take away the power, and you take away the knowledge, and you take away often our connectivity to the internet, what happens? Anxiety quickly rises to the surface. And it particularly rises to the surface, anxiety. It's tied to not knowing what the future holds in particular. What's going to happen next? What will happen if that happens? And humans for, for thousands of years have relied on all sorts of forms of, of, of finding out to find out what, what is happening in the future. So, you know, non-Christians, they read the horoscopes or they go to the palm reader or they get the tarot cards out or whatever it might be because we want to know what is going on. You see that in the scriptures. They went to mediums and fortune tellers. Now, Christians, we do that as well, but we just baptize it spiritually. So we say, I'm just laying out Gideon's fleece. You know, Lord, if, it's, if this is going to happen, I'll know because my fleece will be dry and the ground will be wet. Or we look for prophetic words or we claim promises of scripture out of context. And we look for extra biblical signs. If I wake up and the sun is shining, I think the Lord, mean, the Lord is saying this to me. I'm going to win the lottery. And you, wait, you open the door and it's raining and you go, oh, well, that's not going to happen. Well, the Lord, you know, we look for all sorts of ways in which we can find out what happens tomorrow. Because we think if we know what happens tomorrow, our, car, our hearts will be calm and our minds will be at peace and we'll be okay. But that assumes that tomorrow is going to be sunshine and cupcakes. What if tomorrow the doctor calls and says you've got cancer? What if tomorrow you receive the call that someone has died that you loved? See, what calms our anxieties is not knowing what will happen tomorrow. What calms our anxieties is knowing the God who knows what will happen tomorrow. And that he is working all things in perfect knowledge, with perfect power, for perfect wisdom, for the best goals for yours and my life. Jen Wilkin writes this in one of her books. She says, rather than casting all of your cares on the internet, which cares for no man, cast them on God, for he cares for you. We need to let God be the one who manages all knowledge. Only he is capable and only he can be trusted to do so with perfect wisdom. We need to look to the knowledge of who God is to remove our anxieties. That's what Isaiah's getting at. This will mean less time chasing curiosities online and more time mining for treasure in Scripture. Our comfort lies not in holding all knowledge, but in trusting the one who does. 
There will be frequent times in yours and my life where we are not able to understand why God has allowed something to happen. Maybe even right now you're experiencing something like that. But Isaiah calls us to look to the God and who he is to remove our anxieties. He's wise, he's powerful, he's all-knowing, and we're not. And it pleases him when we have faith to trust his wisdom, even when we do not know what he is doing. So let's be people who don't say, oh, God knows why this is happening to me. And instead, assuredly, look at the scriptures and say, God knows why this is happening to me. And think about the Apostle Paul, and we'll close here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells us that he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove his thorn in the flesh. He had something that was going on in his life that was nagging at him, that was causing him difficulties, that was affecting him, that was troubling him, that was discomforting, that was discouraging. And three times he prayed, Lord, take it away from me. Because he says, this messenger of Satan is causing him to doubt and to question God. It's causing him to look at things and and fear and cause anxiety. And so he says, Lord, take it away from me. And what is God's response to Paul in the midst of his anxiety? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul then says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's what knowing God brings. True peace that rests upon us through Christ whose grace is sufficient for us. Let's pray.